Good morning. What a joy it is to gather together to worship the Lord. Um, I was thinking this morning as we were singing about <clears throat> something I had read a long time ago in uh, the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And <clears throat> there is uh, one reference there he gives to the relationship of the Christian to time. And he says that the Christian is one who lives always in kind of two, uh, two, two approaches towards time. He always lives in eternity and in the present. And that it's when we get out of eternity and in the present that we begin to go wrong as we live in the past or live in the future. And so the demons there in that letter are, are trying to get man to, to live in the future or in the past. And the reason I bring this up this morning is because I think all of us are probably tempted in one way or another not to be here now in this moment of worship. That that's what we're here to do. We're here to worship God. And so let's be here now. All the things that um, are on your mind, on my mind, they're going to still be there uh, when we get done today. And God's going to take care of those things, whatever they might be. Maybe it's something that happened before the service and you're tempted to worry about it. Maybe you got in a little argument on the way here. You're worrying about it the whole time you're sitting here. Just hit the pause button on that. Be present here in this time of worship. And who knows? The Lord may do something through this time that actually solves many of those things that you're worrying about, where instead you would be missing the solution in the midst of the worry or misguided thinking. So let's be present here as we worship God. Last week in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, (coughs) we looked at a climactic verse, nearly everything that Jesus has taught in the main body of this sermon is summed up in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, which is traditionally called the golden rule. And it reads this way. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. I said last week that this is kind of a summing up and boiling down, that Jesus has really tied together all the main threads of the Sermon on the Mount at least with regard to our horizontal interactions, he has tied together all this wonderful, glorious, ethical kingdom teaching, and he has summed it up in this verse where we have the golden rule. So where do we go from here? I mean, it's kind of one of those things where you get to the top of the mountain and you kind of have arrived at, at the high point. What, what do you do at this, at this stage? How do you proceed forward. I mean, we still have a number of verses, although not too many, in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount technically ends at, uh, at verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, you remember back at the beginning in chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his, his disciples came to him. In verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... So that marks the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And then at the end of chapter 7, we see when Jesus finished these sayings. So that is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We still have a bit to go. So where do we go from here? Martin Lloyd-Jones, probably one of the best commentators on this portion of God's Word that you can read, a massive Commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He comments in this way. 
here we can safely say that our Lord really has finished the sermon as such, per se. And that from here on, he is rounding it off and applying it and urging upon his listeners the importance and necessity of practicing it and implementing it in their daily lives. That that's kind of where we're going now after we come down off of the mountaintop of verse 12. He goes on to say that chapter 7 verses 13 to 14, which is what we're going to look at today, in these verses, verses 13 and 14, we are faced with a call to action. What we have heard so far, he says, demands a decision. Hear that, hear that language. Demands a decision and a committal. So go ahead and turn with me there in your Bibles. Matthew 7, verses 13 to 14. A call to action. One that demands a decision and a committal. We'll read those verses in a moment. But today Jesus puts before us a choice. It is much like we find in key places throughout the Old Testament. We can find in in these two key places, and I'm about to read to you, we can find God saying to his people, choose now to anyone who would hear. Choose now. Which will it be? There's one way and there's another way. There is this way or that way. This is what we have in Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 to 20, where Moses says this. He's been with these people who have rebelled. Many of them have rebelled against God. In fact, all of them at one point, except for a select few, had rebelled against God and were unwilling to trust God, the same God who had brought these plagues on Egypt, the same God who had parted the sea, the same God who had given them bread to eat in the wilderness and taken care of their clothes so that they did not wear out and had given them water from a rock. This same God had been with them all throughout this wilderness and they had rebelled against God. They had failed to trust God. And so Moses is coming up to the promised land. He will not bring them into the promised land. Joshua will. But this is what Moses says to the people at this point. After all the law has been given, after all these acts of God that the people have seen, he says this, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, Choose life, he says, that you and your offspring may live. Choose life. And then we get this same language with Joshua. As he leads the people into the promised land, into a a land filled with idol-worshiping pagans, people who sacrifice their own children to their false gods. He says this, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose this day the same language that we find with Moses. So too does the Lord Jesus here call us, each of us, to choose. Each of us must make a choice. It will be this way or that. And that's the title 
for the sermon this morning. This way or that. But before we go any further, we need to answer this question. To whom is Jesus speaking? Who is the audience here? This is a kind of a little bit of a shift. It, it feels like a little bit of a shift. What do we do with this? How do we understand the audience? Because it's very important, I think, as Will very clearly pointed out in the last sermon that he preached, that we understand that these words were initially spoken to that audience. Remember the scene. Jesus has gone up on a mountain, and he is... He has called his disciples to him and he is speaking to them there on that mountain. These are Jewish hearers who are there listening to Jesus. And then we take what Jesus is saying to those initial hearers, to that initial audience, that original audience, and we begin to work that into our own lives, to apply that to ourselves because we recognize that God's word is for God's people across time. That Jesus is not here just speaking to that people there, but he is speaking to us today. He speaks to us right now through these words. He means for us to hear them, to heed them, and to apply them, all of them, to our lives. So who is Jesus' audience then? Well, we know from the beginning that Jesus has directed his sermon to his disciples To the blessed ones, to those who are the light of the world, to those who can call God Father. This is very clear from the very beginning. I've mentioned this before, but if you go back to the beginning of chapter 5, it says in verse 1, it says that his disciples came to him. And then when he opened up his mouth and began to speak to these disciples, he called them blessed ones. These are those who are blessed in God. These are those who are following Jesus and they are blessed in God. And then he goes on to call them the light of the world. This is incredible. And then he speaks of them as being those who can rightly call God Father. Throughout this entire discourse, Jesus has been saying, Your Father. Your Father. So we know, as I've said before, that Jesus has directed his sermon to his disciples. Yet, We know that some of those who were following Jesus at this point, in this early stage of his ministry, did not prove to be true disciples. They proved to be illegitimate disciples, ill-formed disciples, fakes and phonies. They fell away from Jesus. How do we know this? I think there's a key passage that we can look to in John chapter 6. So in John chapter 6, verse 66, we get these words. After this, Jesus had given this teaching about himself being the bread that, that, that they would have to eat him, eat his body and drink his blood, which is imaged in the Lord's Supper. And some of them were just really struggling with what Jesus was saying. And this is what it says after that interaction between Jesus and some of these disciples who were following him and having trouble with what he had to say. John 6, verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So we have some folks, presumably, here on the side of the mountain, who on this day are amening Jesus. Their eyes wide open, mouth wide open, 
in awe, marveling at Jesus. And then just a short while later, Jesus will continue to teach about himself and could teach, teach about the nature of discipleship. And some of them will begin to sort of drift away from Jesus and they will not be true, proven, long-lasting, enduring, persevering disciples. So, some of Jesus' disciples at this point are superficial disciples. They are nominal disciples. They are disciples in name only. So we've got that category. The first category, as I mentioned before, the, those that are they're true disciples. Jesus is speaking to the disciple. But we have amidst this group those who are disciples in name only. And then there's a third group. As we think about Jesus' audience, this is very important for us as we move into a passage like this today. There is this category called the crowds. Now, it's interesting. Go back to the beginning of chapter 5 again. You see it there in the very first verse. Seeing the crowds. Now, Jesus was always surrounded by people. Because he was doing miracles. And we're going to see that after the Sermon on the Mount. We're not going to go, we're not going to move beyond the Sermon on the Mount. But you can see that as you get to chapter 8. Just look at the headings. Jesus cleanses a leper. Then you have the faith of the centurion. There's healing there. Jesus heals many. And then he goes on to calm the storm. He goes on to cast out demons and heal a paralytic. All of these things. Jesus was doing these amazing signs, as John will call them. And the crowds are following him. They are amazed at Jesus. So we have this category called the crowds in chapter 5, verse 1. And then look at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 7, verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, look at that. The crowds were astonished at his teaching. So I think what we're supposed to understand here is that there's this general category called the crowds. And then among those who are part of the crowds, there's a group of disciples who have begun to follow Jesus and have come forward and are listening to him. Yet the crowds can hear. And I would imagine that there are maybe quite a few scribes and Pharisees in those crowds. But nonetheless, we have to reckon with this group called the crowds, the true disciple, the nominal disciple, and this general category of crowds. So what does all of this mean for us? To whom is Jesus speaking today? We sit here this morning, we engage with a passage like we're going to look at. Who's, who is Jesus speaking to? What is he saying? Well, I think first of all, he's speaking to the true and committed disciple. The, the true Christian, the person who has been born again, who is following Jesus, who has committed his or her life to the Lord Jesus Christ and is following him as Lord, is trusting in him as Savior. So what is Jesus going to say in this passage we're about to look at to that category of person? I think Jesus is going to remind us of the nature of the way. He's going to remind us of the nature of discipleship itself. And in doing so, he's going to encourage us to continue on that way. Jesus is going to tell us today about the way of the Christian. The path along which the Christian must travel. And he's going to say to us, stick to this way. Continue on this way. 
till the end. So if you're a Christian here today, truly born again, that's what, above all, you need to hear. What about this second category? The non-disciple who is deluded into thinking that he is a true disciple. You know, I would love to think that every person who is attending Four Corners Church is a converted Christian, but it's probably not so. It's probably not so. That within the church, there are always people who come who are not truly converted. Disciples in name only and deluded into thinking that they belong to Christ but truly do not. And Jesus exposes this to the mind of the person who is not a Christian. And he calls you this morning. Please hear these words. This is gracious from Jesus. He calls you. Stop playing Christian. No more. Turn to Christ and be saved. Don't be nominal. Don't be a superficial disciple. Don't think that just because your your mom and dad were Christians and raised you in a Christian home or because your spouse is a Christian or because you read Bible stories to your children that you're going to go to heaven, that you belong to Christ. Jesus is saying, hear me, hear me about true discipleship. So Jesus is speaking to the nominal Christian. Maybe that is you. The true Christian, you may say, well, wow, I don't, I don't know which of those categories I fit into. And, you know, let me say this. One of the things that is difficult in preaching texts like we're going to come at today is that there's one thing you don't want to do for people. You do not want real Christians to, to not be assured of their salvation. It's not something that you aim for. Uh, that Satan is good at that. Right? Satan is very good at, at leading Christians to doubt their salvation. So you don't want to do that. That's not the objective here. If you're truly a Christian, you want to be built up in your most holy faith. Hope in Christ. Trust in him in your stead, in your place. And relying on his grace to move forward in a better way in the Christian life. Not to be always doubting, tossed to and fro. So, there is certainly not the interest to do that. However, the church is filled with non-converts. The church is filled today with people who think they are going to heaven, and they are not. They're not Christians. And in this regard, they need to hear the truth of the Christian life. They need to hear Jesus' call to discipleship. Jesus' call to death to self. Jesus' call to abandon all. All Jesus' call to pick up the cross and follow after him. And so, some ways that I think we can understand the difference. Before we even get into the content, really, of these verses, this is all preliminary, and I think it's important to start with. The first, I think, is that the true Christian is poor in spirit. Let's just go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Poor in spirit. Do you find that in your heart? Do you find in your heart, imperfectly so, but do you find in your heart that you look at the end of the day not to yourself because you know that you have nothing in yourself, but you look away from yourself to Christ because it is the mark of a Christian 
That at the end of the day, imperfectly so, you do not live life in self-reliance, relying on your works, but you trust Christ. You look to him. You're poor, empty, in the dirt, on your own. The second is that you hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is so important. Do you love God's truth and his life that he calls you to? Do you love holiness? Do you want to be holy? You say, God, I want to be like you. I hate my sin. I hate my sin. I want to be just like you, Jesus. Is that your heart? Is that your attitude? Because here's the thing. Although imperfectly so, if that's not, you're not a Christian. Christians hunger and thirst for righteousness. They want to be like Christ. So that, I think, is a second test, just from the Sermon on the Mount. And thirdly, is God your Father? This is a huge theme. We've seen all along. Do you know God as Father? There will be times where you don't feel His presence, you don't feel that He's your Father. But do you know Him on the whole as Abba? These are three ways right now, this morning, before we go any further. Where, whereby you can situate yourself. You can, you can begin to understand whether or not you fit into the category of the person for whom Jesus is saying, continue on this way, or the category of person who is, who is there, present, but is not converted, is not really a Christian. But either way, Jesus today, he gives his grace. He extends an invitation to all of us, either way. And then we have that third category of the interested onlooker. Maybe that's you. You've just, you're visiting this morning. You're not a Christian. You wouldn't say you're a Christian. You're not a nominal Christian. You're not a Christian in name or in truth. You're just simply a seeker or you're, you're an onlooker. You're just, you're just kind of taking it in and, and you're skeptical and you just don't know. I think you're represented here by these crowds. And as Jesus speaks to his disciples and those who are following him, who may not persevere, he's also speaking over them, beyond them, to you this morning. Will you hear the Lord? So let's look at our passage. Stand with me for the reading of God's word, if you will. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. The ESV puts this with, chapter, with verse 12. It, I think, is a new section, so it should be understood that way. Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. If you will, go ahead and be seated and we'll pray. Some of the most sobering words in all of the Bible. I pray that we will let them sit heavy on our hearts today. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, God Almighty, thank you for your word. Thank you that you don't leave us in sin. That you snatch us up graciously, kindly. Oh, Lord, we praise you that you've put before us today such, such penetrating words, 
such words of, of action, such, such a call to action, such a call to choose, such a mirror. God, show us. Show us where we are. Show us if we are unconverted that we might be converted, that we might turn to you by grace through faith, that we might believe and take hold of you. Show us if we are beginning to waffle on the way, beginning to be afraid and beginning to lack courage and beginning to lack endurance. Would you help us to be strong on the way that is narrow? Father, just be merciful to us today in exposing us to ourselves. God, how, how often we are blinded by our own sin. We are blinded by this busy world and loud world. Father, show us. Show us where we stand with you today, each of us. Be merciful in that. And give us your Holy Spirit, those who do not know him, that he would come, as Jesus says in John 3, that he would come and regenerate hearts. And for those of us who have the Spirit, would we be filled with him? Would we be poor in spirit and rely on him for everything that we need? Father God, would these words, these precious, challenging, weighty words just sit so heavy on every heart today? In Jesus' name, amen. So the title of the sermon this morning is This Way or That. This is the choice that Jesus puts before his hearers. And I think there are at least four things that we can say about this choice. At least four things about this choice. Jesus puts before us how many ways? Two. It's, it's not a, a myriad of choices. It's one choice between two ways. And think about this. This is amazing. Before we go any further this morning, you are right now on one of these two roads. Right now. Which is it? Which is it? Let God's word expose that. Deal with that. First, a deliberate choice. Secondly, it's a costly choice. Thirdly, a Jesus choice. And finally, it is a forever choice. So let's dig into these and see what Jesus is saying to us here. So first, this choice that Jesus puts before us is a deliberate choice. Jesus portrays this choice between two gates, two ways, two destinations, as a deliberate choice in a few ways. There's a few clues that we have here to let us know that this is very much a deliberate choice. The first is by entering, this language of entering. At the very beginning, we see that the command or the call of Jesus here is to enter. Notice that. He's commanding us to enter. Now, let me say this. You can err on the side of human responsibility or divine sovereignty. We are, and we've said this, we've been clear about this, we are a reformed church in the sense that we believe that God is sovereign in salvation. That he, those who are saved, he chose before the foundation of the world in Christ. That a person comes to Christ because Christ calls them particularly Due to the election of the Father before the foundation of the world. That, that God sent Christ into the world to save his elect. To save those whom he chose before the foundation of the world. To die for his bride. To give his life 
for his sheep. We believe that here. But human responsibility should never be thrown away next to divine sovereignty. That would be unbiblical. That would be foolish. The Bible calls us to trust that our salvation is because of God, not because of us. Yet, we are told every step along the way, choose, 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 decide. We must respond. Without human response, there is no salvation. We must respond to the call of the gospel. And here, Jesus houses that response in this one word, enter. We must respond to Jesus' words by entering through the narrow gate onto the hard, pressed-in, constricted road. This is a definitive human response, and it is essential to being a Christian. Now, here's the thing. We can go back in our lives and, and we can begin to, to, to become afraid and worried because we can't delineate a clear, definitive choice to begin to follow Christ. Or we can't, you know, reference our spiritual birthday. This is something I've, I've mentioned before. And it's not always the case that you're able to do that. But I will say this. We do not grow into the Christian life. The Christian life is by no means a default position. It is something that must be deliberately entered into as we find here from the Lord Jesus. So the first word that lets us know that it is deliberate is this, this language of entering. The second is this language of seeking, which I think is implied at the very end of these verses. So look at the end of verse 14. Jesus says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who, what, find it are few. Now, anytime you see the word find, you should put with that word the word seek. That this is something that must be found. And this implies that it is something that must be sought after. This is a deliberate choice to seek after God and to enter into this Way That is the human response we must all have. We are not just pawns standing still, moved around by God. God is sovereign in salvation, but we must choose him. We must seek him. Let me give you a little bit of uh, the story from Luther's conversion in light of, uh, excuse me for all this sniffling. I have a cold. Uh, I'll give you. This uh, quote from Luther's conversion, when uh, he felt as though the Lord had radically transformed him and he had finally become a Christian. Listen to the language that he uses here. He says, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, I was angry with God. Thus, I raged with a, with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat persistently upon Paul at that place, speaking of Romans 1, 17, which captured his mind. Most ardently desiring to know 
what St. Paul meant there about the righteousness of God and faith. At last, by the mercy of God, listen to this, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. And he goes on to describe what precisely in Romans 1, 16 and 17 that he had meditated upon, that he had given his life to, what precisely it was in those verses that, that began to work deep into his soul. And then he said this, here, here, at this point, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Luther sought the Lord. Why? Because of God's grace. But that does not negate the fact that he needed to seek in order to find. And all of us must seek if we are to find. So we have entering, we have seeking, and we also have this language of turning, which I think is implied as well. It's not Explicit here, but I think it's implied. One thing that is clearly implied here is that finding and entering the narrow way involves turning away from the broad way. What we have to understand is that all of us begin life on the broad way. There is a broad way and there is a narrow way. And all of us, we don't start life neutral. You don't come into the world with, hey, am I going to go the broad way or am I going to go the narrow way? Let me see here for a moment. I think I could either just stand here or I could just kind of coast down the middle. It doesn't work that way. There is no standing still. There is no coasting down the middle. From the time a human being is born since Adam, they are on the broad way that leads to hell. That is every single person in Adam. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We are all beginning life in Adam. We don't grow up being Christians We don't simply become Christians by osmosis. We don't join a group of Christians and thereby become Christians. Not because we have Christian parents, Christian spouse, as I mentioned earlier. The truth is we must repent of a life lived on the broad way. Every single one of us in this room this morning who is a true Christian has done this. Broadway turn. Narrow way. And if you have not done that, you are not a Christian If you have not turned away from the broad way and turned to the narrow path, that's not the Christian life. As I said before, it may not be something that you can delineate in time, but you must know this. Every Christian must have turned away from that towards this. Repentance and faith are essential to becoming a Christian. So Jesus here calls his hearers to make a deliberate choice between this way or that. And that moves to our second point about this choice between this way or that. It's a deliberate choice, but it is also a costly choice. Here I want to draw your attention to the contrast that Jesus makes between these two ways. One is wide and spacious, and the other is narrow and constricted. One is popular with Many travelers along the path. Many people to wave at. Many people to shake hands with. Many co-patriots, many companions to walk along life's journey with. It's popular. The other is not. And it has but few travelers. So look at the passage. 
Listen to the language. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. This tells us that movement from the broad to the narrow is one that is accompanied by difficulty, discomfort, and cost. Just the mere language, the ESV uses the word easy and hard. That's, that's probably not the best way to render this because really it's just the idea of broad and narrow. So it's a narrow gate and it's a, a narrow way. That's probably just the best way to render the word or constricted. It's a narrow gate through which you enter. And then once you enter, it is a constricted narrow way as opposed to a way that you enter quite easily. It's massive. It's a massive gate, and you enter it. And then once you get on it, it's quite spacious. You can run there to the right. You can run there to the left. You can move around freely. You can change directions here and there as you please. You can go over and hang out with these folks for a while and these folks for a while. There's plenty of folks on this way. But listen to the way that Jesus describes elsewhere this narrow way. Luke 14, verses 25 to 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoa. We'll see what that means when we get to the end. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Hear this. This is not easy believism. This is not just Jesus will be your best friend. He'll solve all your life's problems. Pray a prayer and there you go. This is not the Christianity of the Bible. This is not the Christianity of Jesus. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Count the cost. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, Ha! This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. This is Jesus' point. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Let me say that again. All of you Everyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you a Christian? The cost associated with this narrow way is total self-renunciation. And in a sense, this is what we have with the poverty of spirit in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what we have with do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If someone smacks you on one cheek, you give to them the other. This is the kind of total death to self that Jesus has been calling us to all along. It is like what we find in 2 Corinthians 5.15. Where it says that we no longer live for ourselves. 
but for the one who for our sake died and was raised. At the core of your heart, are you still living for yourself? Now, there will be much selfishness in Christians, but is that what governs you? Jesus says, unless we renounce all, we cannot be his disciple. This is also the image of a very small door. So imagine this. You come into, a number of commentators point this out. You come onto the Broadway with all the bags you need. It reminds me of when Jennifer and I moved to Scotland. We had all these bags, and we couldn't even make it down the street. I mean, it was insane. We had two or three large suitcases packed on top of one another. We were just trying to sort of move from the sidewalk to the bus and, and then move from the bus to the sidewalk. It was, it was a miserable day in many ways. But... That is, I think, reminiscent of, of really what we have here. The, the, the person just comes onto this path. They have all that they need, all that they want. They have everything. They have their cake and eat it too kind of thing. All their sins, all their self-fulfillment and their dreams and love of self and glorying in the world and love of pleasure and sensuality, all of it just piled up, baggage, luggage, bringing it in. And guess what? There's enough room for you to do that. And there's enough room for everyone else right there beside you to do the same. The image of the narrow way is much different. The narrow gate is enough for only one man at a time. He must come personally and with nothing. He comes with nothing. He leaves behind his sin. He leaves behind his self-reliance. And he comes into this way. I like the way that John Stott describes the broad way or road. He's another excellent commentator on this passage. He says this, there is plenty of room on it for diversity of opinions and laxity of morals. It is the road of tolerance and permissiveness. It has no curbs, no boundaries of either thought or conduct. Travelers on this road follow their own inclinations. That is the desires of the human heart In its fallenness. It is totally free. So they think. Yet we know that it is slavery indeed. Yet it appears to be freedom. Its breadth can can also be seen in its diversity. Think about this. This is amazing. We've been introduced already to two very different people. We've been introduced to the self-righteous hypocritical Pharisee. Now imagine him. He's on the Broadway. And he's got his Hebrew Bible. And he's got his, his long robe. And he's got his sort of holy walk. And his devout, all of his uh, devotion and his piety. He looks very different from the person who says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Who's right next to him. Who has no care for religion, has no care for piety, has no care for sacred literature, sacred books. Just simply living for self. We've been introduced to the hypocrite. We've been introduced to the pagan. The one who says, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? Both of these individuals are, you need to see this, hand in hand on the broad way. This broad way is so broad that it can accommodate so many different forms of sinfulness. So many different forms of godlessness. Whether it is self-righteousness and pride or it is just absolute pleasure-seeking idolatry. Both can fit on this broad way. We will also see in the next passage that the 
so-called Christian, the counterfeit Christian, also fits on this path. There's actually people on this path who talk about Jesus. Isn't that incredible? That on this broad way, there are people who have much to say about the Lord Jesus. And who will, when they die, say to Jesus, But Lord, Lord, didn't I do all these things in your name? I lived for you, right? So there's even Jesus talk on the broad way we learn from the next passage. Its breadth can hold all of this diversity. By contrast, the narrow way is exclusive. It is self-denying. It is persecuted. And it can be quite lonely. For those of you who maybe work where there are no Christians, you're not lonely this morning perhaps. And maybe you have only Christians in your family. You're not lonely when you go together at family gatherings. Or for those of you whose entire family is unsaved. Or you work entirely with non-Christians. You understand what it means to be one who is on this path of the few in the midst of the many. It's lonely. It's unpopular. There is a cost. So what are some implications of all of this for the Christian? I think there are two main implications before we move to our next two points. And they are that I think this affects evangelism. If this is a costly choice, then here's what we must do. We must present, when we present the gospel... We must present a narrow gate. That must be part of our presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we present any gospel that is not a narrow gate with a narrow way, we fail to be truthful and honest with people who desperately need the truth. We cannot give people a gospel that is different from the gospel that Jesus gave to them and gives to them. We are merely ambassadors of Christ. We are merely messengers. Who are we to reinvent the gospel? To strip it and simplify it and make it more palatable? Jesus says narrow is the gate. And that is what we must declare to all. A second application I think for those of us who are Christians. Is it encourages us on our pilgrimage. This is not an easy path. It's costly. It's difficult. It's hard. And here's the thing. We shouldn't be surprised when it feels that way. Satan is always buffeting us. I love that that language. He's always attacking us. He is trying to hem us in. It is a self-denying. Listen to this. It is a self-denying, cross-carrying, flesh-mortifying, others-serving, Satan-battling kind of life. Why would it be easy How could it possibly be easy when defined biblically in that way? Of course it is hard. And here's the wonderful thing that we are told is that we have each other. That this is not a path upon which one person travels. It is not many, but there are few and there are some. And that tells us that we're not alone. And that's why we need church. So don't be asking the question, you know, I don't really need to go to church. Should I really have have to go to church? That's the wrong question. The right question is, what do I need in order to live this life on the narrow path? And what Jesus will tell us and what the New Testament will tell us time and time again is each other. We need each other in order to carry our crosses and to accept this cost. 
But more than anything else, this is my favorite, my favorite part of this sermon. More than anything else, we need to see that this deliberate and costly choice is really a Jesus choice. And here's what I mean. This is a choice concerning Jesus. It is a singular choice concerning a singular person. So Jesus puts before us what? A door or a gate. He puts before us a way and he puts before us a destination which he calls life. And we know what this is. Jesus has just spent all, these, all this time telling us this is the way of righteousness from the heart. This is the way of living out the law and the prophets from the heart. We know that in general what it is. But, I love this. One of the amazing things that we discover when we go to the Gospel of John is that Jesus says that he himself is all of these things. This is amazing. Listen to the language. John 10, 9. I am the door. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I am the door. Then he says in John 14, 6, I am the way. And then he says in the same verse, I am the life. And he tells Mary and Martha there in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. This is a choice for a person concerning a person. So when Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate here in Matthew seven thirteen, he is essentially saying the same thing that he does in Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's the same thing. To enter this way is to come to Jesus. So come to Jesus. You know, we oftentimes have that little joke, this is a come to Jesus moment, which I've never liked. I even heard seminary professors say that in class. I never really liked it. It's kind of blasphemous in my opinion. But I mean that in all truth. Come to Jesus. That's the message today. That's always the message. Come to Jesus. When Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, this is precisely what he means. The irony here is that the way of cost is the way of rest. Isn't that incredible? That we see the costliness of this path and it it causes us to tremble. It's lonely and it's persecuted and it's hard and every day I have to fight. I can't take a vacation. I can't can't just make it at ease. I can't can't just relax in comfort. I can't do any of that. It's, it's, It's striving and it's tough and it's hard and yet the irony here is that Jesus says at its core it is rest. Why? How can that B, the reason is that the Pharisees put heavy burdens on the people, teaching them that they had to be right with God through their works. Jesus says, come to me, I've already done the work. He did the work. You can't do what Jesus did. You can't die for your own sins. You are dying in your sins. Jesus came and died for sinners as the perfect sacrifice. He did the work, and he does the work in saving us as we respond to him. He presents us with a life of being poor in spirit and abiding in him. It's costly, but it is so truly restful. 
And if you've been a Christian for a long time, you know exactly what this means. You can look back at your life and you can say being a Christian is really tough. But being a Christian is really sweet. It is really joyful. It is, as Jesus said at the very beginning of all of this, blessed. It is happy. So what does this tell us? If it's a Jesus choice, it tells us it's not an ethical choice or a religious choice. That's not what the Bible puts before you today. The Bible does not put before you today, become religious. No, it does not put before you today, become more ethical. Follow the right ways and paths. No, it tells you, come to Jesus. That's what the Bible puts before us. A person, not just this vague notion of right and wrong, but a person in whom is housed all that is right and good and true. This is a Jesus choice. And finally, this morning as we finish, it is a forever choice. I'll make this point brief. Heaven and hell are real. Whether you believe it or not, heaven and hell are real. And here, Jesus puts before us a choice. Destruction or life. One or the other. It is an amazing and weighty thing to consider that everyone in this room will one day be ruined or flourishing in glory. Every one of us. What a thought that you would sit here this morning and hear the word of Jesus and end in ruin. What a horrible thought that you would not hear these words of Christ and come to Jesus and, and repent of your sins and trust in what he did for you. What a horrible thought that on that day, Christ would bring to your remembrance this very moment and forever you would be separated from him in hell. But remember what we said before. Jesus is the life. He's the way. He's the life. He's the road. So let me say this to you. It is not just a choice between heaven or hell. Sometimes we think, okay, fine, I'll do this thing. I'll get to go to heaven. It's not what it is. It's not just a choice between heaven or hell. Eternal life or eternal damnation. It is a choice between Christ's presence or his absence. That is what we are choosing When we choose this, Christ's presence or his absence, let me say it this way. When we choose to have nothing to do with his cross in this life, we are choosing to have nothing to do with his glory in the life to come. We must choose his cross now if we are to share in his glory then So in whatever state you find yourself today, hear and heed these words of our Lord. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we love you, but we don't love you as we ought to. We thank you that you accept our feeble love, our feeble faith, because of Christ's perfect love and perfect faith. 
that through his righteous, obedient life and his perfect, sacrificial, self-giving death, we are forever righteous in your sight and we will shine like stars of heaven with you forever. God, we praise you for this gospel. We praise you for this life, this narrow way of cost yet rest. We pray that we will find rest in the cost. And Father, if there's anyone here today who's not a Christian, Father, would they come and grab us after the service and say, talk to me, pray with me, I need Christ. Father, would you just work among us? Would we all recognize that this is the biblical Christian life, that this is it, not the watered-down version that we settle for, Father? Help us see that, each of us, and help us follow our Savior all the way to death, that in him we might find the resurrection and the life. In Jesus' name, amen.